give you a couple of places to open your Bible and then we'll pray for those that I just mentioned. Uh, Luke 24 is one place that I want to open up tonight with. So that's technically the first place I'll go. And then off to uh, Psalm 45. Which I hope I do it justice. I'm afraid I won't. So I'm just we'll just say that I'm going to prep you for spending some good time and a quiet time in Psalm 45. How about that? And that way you can uh, do it justice yourself. Psalm 45, but uh, Luke 24 first, probably around verse, let's see, 44, I'll start. But once the pages stop turning, we'll pray. Father, thank you for our time this evening. Uh, thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity just to gather in your name, open up your word to your church, and uh, just spend some time allowing the Spirit of God to speak to us from the Word of God about the Son of God in order that we might know Him more and be made more like Him in our ways, in our character, in our thinking and doing. So I pray that you would take my words and sanctify them and set them apart for your purposes in our hearts and again manifest Christ there. Father, I pray that you be with um, Maisel and pray that you would minister to her physically right now and uh, help Granny Vic as she and the rest of them as they take care of her. Uh, thank you for your ministry to my family over this past week. And Father, I pray that you continue to help my mom and dad physically and spiritually as they walk through uncharted territory for them. And I pray that you would mature them in the faith along the way. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke 24, you'll remember this. Uh, but he says something that we have to keep in mind often when we're reading through the Old Testament. In verse 44, he said to them, the disciples, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in, notice, the law of Moses, which is going to cover your first five books, the prophets, which would cover the rest of the books, and then in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So the Lord set the disciples down and said, hey, it's all about me. All right. And so he gave them a unique understanding as to all the Old Testament, which turned or pointed to him. And so when we read some of this, some of the things that are written down in the New Testament that quote the Old Testament, it's absolutely safe ground for us to read those passages in light of Christ. But you want to be careful. Uh, some people go nuts with that and they take it upon themselves just to turn passages and make them about Christ. I've never felt safe doing that. I always scratch my head carefully when others do that. But Psalms 45 is without question about Jesus because it's quoted by the writer of Hebrews. I also think it's quoted by Paul in Romans 9. I'll show you that particular verse. But when you look at this, it is clearly Christological. And at the same time, since we are going to interpret the passage this way, it's ecclesiological or it's not only about Christ, it's about the church. And then you can add to that it's eschatological because the last two verses look forward to the kingdom of God. 
So you, you know, typically run across psalms that are this unique, and you don't run across ones that are so clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we turn to Psalms 45, I want you to keep that in mind. I also want you to keep this in mind. This is a wedding. No other psalm is like this. He is clearly describing a wedding. And the coolest thing is you can see them getting dressed. You can see the bride being presented to the groom. You can hear the musical instruments playing. I mean, it's really an awesome thing, but it's an illustration or a metaphor for Christ and his church. And you see his manifest love for her, but she's also called to do some things um, in response to his love. So we think about a wedding, and I imagine at some point I might make it to Ephesians 5 and we'll read that. But if I don't, there you go. I want you, once you sit down and spend some time with Psalm 45, go read Ephesians 5 and you'll understand your marriage better. Because we can only understand our marriages in light of the gospel because our marriages point to the gospel. The gospel is the greater thing. And so if we understand the gospel, Christ and his church in light of our marriage, we'll do a better job in our marriages. Okay? Because we want to emulate those same attitudes that we find here in regard to his heart for his church. So I won't even attempt the first verse there for the choir director, and I won't go much further than that. You'll notice in the NAS it says a song of love. And I think it's probably better titled, not a song of love, but a wedding song. I think that's probably better uh, than that. Um, but anyway, that's, an, that's a translation, I suppose, of what's going on here. So you got verses 1, and, and verse 1 is absolutely unique, something else you don't get very often. And that's how the writer penned the words of God. There's a couple of different places that we get this, but the way that he describes it is absolutely unique. Notice what he says in verse 1, My heart overflows with a good theme. So most translations have to deal with the overflowing of the heart, but it's interesting the word literally is fire has something to do with fire. And so in other words, his heart is warmed. In other words, the Spirit of God has moved on him and it's overflowed so much that he picks up the pen and he begins to write. Notice what he says after that. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And so this gives us some insight. Of course, you know, we hear this a lot that someone speaks from the heart. And the guy's literally doing this in the passage. So you have to be careful about criticizing that. But what you absolutely want to do every single time is to take what's said that they said came from the heart and measure it with Scripture. If it's faithful with Scripture, it's fine. But if it's not faithful with Scripture, which you often hear following those words, it's not fine. It literally came from their heart and it didn't go any deeper than that. But this writer says the spirit moved upon him so that his heart began to overflow. And there's speed in this is in the wording, too. He took off with the pen. In other words, he's just cranking out what God has written on his heart. We see who it's addressed to. I address my verses to the king. And so most of this, beginning in verse three, let me divide it up for you. If you're taking those kind of notes, three through five is about the king's victory in war. 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 is about the, the throne of the king where he reigns. And then he begins to speak to the bride. This is really cool. 10 all the way down through 15 is words to the bride. 
And then the last two verses, 16 and 17, again, look forward to their children. That's really cool. It looks forward to the sons and the daughters of the king. Okay. Now, I'll tell you this, and I just noticed this the last time I read through this. The writer walks through it in this format. He deals with the king. He brings the king all the way to the point where the bride's presented to him. So he's standing there with the king, you know, at his side. Then he starts over with the bride and he calls the bride. We see the bride get dressed and then they bring the bride to the king and the story stops. So in other words, if we're in a wedding, the minister never speaks. He just brings the bride down twice, standing next to the groom. And then he cuts it off at the end and begins to talk about their kids. And it's really cool to think about how he's communicated this to us. Of course, we know the wedding feast in heaven. So I guess he left it there uh, for us to read about in the book of Revelations. But anyway, it is pretty neat. So my heart overflows back in verse 1. With a good theme, I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. First comments to the king, you are fairer than the sons of men. Now immediately, the one that is the fairest among all, we should translate or understand as the Lord Jesus Christ. There absolutely should be no wondering beyond that one statement right there, right? We don't have to go further. But it's also a challenge to us because the writer's heart has overflowed and he's orally addressing these verses as his pen picks up. But nonetheless, he makes a statement about the groom, you're the fairest among men. And we need to consider that as well. Is Christ the fairest among anything else in our life? Is he incomparable? Now, if you think about a wedding, of course, the groom thinks that of her bride, and hopefully the bride thinks that of her groom. The groom, I know what the groom's thinking, same thing I was thinking, and all of you were thinking. She is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. Just trembling. I thought I was going to pass out. But that's exactly what the writer communicates here. When you look upon Christ, there is no one else that compares. Now, you ladies, since he's kind of writing this from that perspective, hopefully you think about that of your husband, but hopefully you think that about Christ more than your husband. Because if you think that about Christ, you will love your husband better. If your wife looks upon Christ as the fairest among men, she will truly love her husband because she will understand the teaching of Scripture. But we really need to ask that question. Is he the fairest in my life? Do I love him more than my own life? Do I love him more than my wife? Do I love him more than my kids? Do I love him more than my hobbies and my passions and all the other things that I do with my time? Do I love him more than my job? You know, those are real questions that you need to deal with on a regular basis. Is he the fairest among all? But he's not fair to this writer, and I don't think he would physically be to us, especially if you read Isaiah 53. I don't think he's talking about his physical beauty because of the next verse. Notice what he says there. Grace is poured upon your lips. It's not his looks, it's his words that the writer has found so fascinating. Now certainly we know that Jesus is, in John 1, is referred to as what? The Word. This has caused me to ponder that. Go back with me, keep your finger there, go back with me to, to Luke. 
Luke chapter 4. Of course, you'll, this is the first, uh, I guess, sermon of the Lord recorded for us. Luke 4, notice verse 14 to establish the context. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about Him spread. Verse 16, He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up as was His custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Him. He opened the book. He found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now notice, 20. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he began to speak and preach, sitting down. Verse 22. All were speaking well of him and were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And we have this reference several times in Scripture. They were utterly amazed at his words. Of course, they were the words of God. It would be like a mother's milk to a newborn baby if we were to hear those words ourselves with our own ears. I can't wait. According to the book of Isaiah, you and I are going to walk up the hill on the Mount of God and we're going to sit down and He's going to preach to us and teach us. I imagine that'll be the sweetest sound we've ever heard in our life. But it does remind us the importance of our words because we have the same message. We certainly wouldn't communicate it in such a wonderful way, a way so full of grace and truth. John 1 about the Lord Jesus Christ but we have the same story. So we're awfully close. And so we need, we need to remember that. The grace that's been poured upon our lips as we communicate the gospel, especially to our kids, or to our family, or to our friends, or to people we meet. That's such a precious time. That's such a powerful time. That's such a grace-filled time to speak the words of life to other people, okay? But everything the Lord said they were filled with the power of God and the presence of God because He was God. Can't imagine listening. Here's a quote from, um, I think his name was Horn, one commentator. He said, His word instructed the ignorant, resolved the doubtful, comforted the mourner, reclaimed the wicked, silenced his adversaries, healed diseases, controlled the elements, and raise the dead. Now those are some words. And you guys need to remember that when you mount the pulpit from time to time and you get such a blessed opportunity to pray that the grace of God would anoint your lips and you would speak the truth of God and the grace of God and in the power of God. Man, words are so precious to us and our Lord was the fairest among men when he opened his mouth. Certainly it was beauty to behold and to hear. That's why we have the very next statement, which is something that Paul says in Romans 9, I believe it's verse 5. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And again, you can't make that statement about any other man. 
That statement only fits in the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of the grace that has been poured upon your mouth, God has blessed you forever. So that's your introduction to the groom. That's the blessings that's spoken over the groom. And now he wants to tell you how awesome he is in two respects. He's going to talk about his victory in war. And then he's going to talk about the reign, his reign as king. So let's deal with the war. It's verses 3 through 5. I'll read it and then we'll back up. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach, the NAS has, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. So the first thing is, is really a blessing that's spoken over the king, that he would gird his sword upon his side and he would ride on in the splendor of his majesty and he would ride on victoriously. So he's blessing the groom or the king, if you will, same person with victory in his warfare. But look at the reason that he goes to war. This is what he is fighting for. This is the cause. Truth, meekness, or you could translate that humility and righteousness. That's what he fights for. Truth, humility, and righteousness. Of course, you immediately know his enemies. Anyone who is against truth and against humility and against righteousness. That's the whole world, right? So now we have to understand the warfare in a little bit different language. Because he's praying that his arrows would be sharp. And we know that his tongue is sharp and we know that his tongue speaks truth. So it's not just talking about the conquering of the enemies, but it would also include the winning of the enemies over to Christ. For certainly our hearts were pierced with truth one day and we turned from our sins and we professed our faith in the king. And that's victory for the king. So it's not just the destruction of the enemy, it's the converting of the enemy as well. That's how great this king is. He's not just killing, he's winning, right? He's winning people over to truth, humility, and righteousness. You can look at your own life and see if he won the war. Hopefully he has, because it was certainly a war. I guarantee you it was a war to win me. I didn't like the word in verse 4, let your right hand teach you. And there's a lot of doings over that word in every different commentary, but I did like one translation. Um, the guy's long since dead. I can't think of who it was now. But he said, let your right hand guide you into awesome things. In other words, may your dominant hand in everything it does find victory. Let it lead you from victory to victory to victory. So again, it's a blessing. Again, verse, the people's fall and the arrows are in the heart of his enemies. Verse 6 and 7, he changes gears and he begins to speak about his throne. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. 
Well, let's stop there and we'll pick back up eight, verse 8 and 9. So hopefully you're going, man, I've heard that before. And you would be right. We've been through the book of Hebrews, so go with me to Hebrews. And this is why it's absolutely safe. I mean, we've run across, we just ran across a verse, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, which obviously can only be answered in the person of Christ. But the New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews quoted this word for word in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, if you, if you remember chapter 1, and we, made it, we did it a few years back, what he's saying in chapter 1 is that Christ is better than angels, right? And so he goes through all these different quotations from the Old Testament to point to that. Notice verse 5, just for context. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 8 is where the quotation begins. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And the word companions, you would have to take in this context, is above the other angelic beings. But nonetheless, you're talking about the deity of Christ here because you're God, right? Therefore, God, you're God. God the Father has anointed you as God overall. D-E-I, Sarah. <laughs> this is a clear reference to the deity of Christ, right? And so the writer, it's amazing. The writer whose heart had overflowed was certainly led by the Spirit of God because he understood about the kingdom of God and he understood about the king himself. And so he writes these words. Now, when you think about his throne being forever, of course, you could do 2 Samuel 7 and remember the promise that was given to David. But one commentator wrote this. This is so thoughtful. Christ's exaltation to the throne is in just proportion to his former humiliation. His joy is greater than his former grief. His riches are greater than his former poverty. Because none ever served or suffered like him, therefore none reigns or rejoices like him. Which should remind us of what Old Testament book? Becky should get this. Job. I mean, you can take that principle and go back and apply it to a Christological emphasis of how Job lost it all. And you read the last chapter and it's like it was an add-on or something. Everything gets replaced, you know, double. And then we think about the humiliation of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, and you realize what God has done on his behalf and seated him at his right hand, making him Lord and King over all. The repayment was double, if not more. Right? So certainly he is a great king. He is the forever king. And he has loved righteousness. He has hated wickedness and absolute faithfulness. Therefore, God has anointed him above his fellows. It says back in Psalm 45. All right, so make your way back if you're not already there. Psalm 45. And we'll watch the groom get dressed for the wedding.
All your garments, verse 8, are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, here goes the music, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Orpher. And we stop with the, we stop with the groom. So you see him get dressed in his stately garments. He's prepared. He's been anointed. Now he's been dressed. The music begins to play. The king's daughters are among the nobles there, among the noble ladies that are at the wedding. And now he presents the queen at his right hand. Now, we've got to stop and talk about the church. Because we understand the right hand to be the position of honor and glory because the Son has been seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, God doesn't have hands, so we have to understand this in the spiritual sense. He is at that place of great honor. He is at the highest place. Now we see where the church has been brought. Here she stands among all the other noble women as the one to be recognized in gold at the right hand of the groom. And you have to realize at that what Jesus thinks of his church. You ought to be absolutely willing, joyfully willing to give your life for the sake of the church. To serve the church is of the greatest honor. And to speak poorly of the church, you would be among the greatest of fools. We really got to be careful. The problem is not with the church. The problem is with men within the church that tries to lead the bride astray. This is a good time that I've had to remind ourselves, don't say anything negative about the church. Not any church. Because Christ has seated her in the most highest place, which speaks of His love for her. And of course we understand the love for her. He died for her. You can't overestimate the love of Jesus for His church. What an honor it is to be a part of the church of the living God. It is the greatest honor of your life. Because you will be wed to your husband who is the fairest among men. I mean, this is some kind of love story, right? You got the fairest among men and you have the most beautiful of brides in this wedding scene. Love the church. Give your life for the church. Serve the church. You're not wasting your time. Verse 10, he begins to speak to the bride. Listen, O daughter. Give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Now, what does that remind us of? You've got to realize we've backed up. She's not dressed. She hadn't even been brought to the place of the wedding yet. But this statement, forget your people in your father's house, what is that? Does that ring a bell? Genesis 2. Turn with me there if you want to. I'll read it to you. The Lord fashioned the woman, verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, rather, the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. 
The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So I always quote that anytime I ever do a wedding because a new loyalty has been formed. The husband or, or the groom rather is not first and foremost faithful to his father and his mother. He has a new loyalty. He is faithful to his bride. He has severed that relationship. You can't carry that too far, but that relationship must be severed. His loyalty is to his bride. But you get over into Psalm 45 and you, you figure out this thing goes both ways. Of course, you could bring this practically down and we probably all know marriages that were severely hurt or damaged because either the husband or the wife didn't sever the relationship with the father and the mother. Nothing's worse than bad in-laws. Can I get an amen, right? Y'all don't have any. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But that's the instruction to the bride here because she has a new loyalty. And it's not just severing from the father and the mother, your people in your house. It's a severing from all things. And now we've got to think again, just like we did with the fair among men. Have you severed yourself from all loyalties for the sake of your husband, who is Christ? Now, that, that should make you evaluate again every area in your life. He calls us to sever all loves and all loyalties for him. That's exactly what you do when you get married. You got to cut off all loves, um, all close friends, all loyalties, all passions, all desires. You don't get to do both, right? Not to come together truly in marriage. And when we come to faith in Christ, we need to see it in this way. And we need to constantly evaluate that we've not lifted anything above our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. Now look at how he responds to such loyalty in verse 11. It's absolutely awesome. Then the king, the groom, if you will, will desire your beauty. Because she has made him the singular loyalty in her life, he responds by desiring her, by loving her. And we all know, well, we don't know, we know theologically, but perhaps we haven't yet experienced it. There is no love like the love of Christ. And it takes maturity and it takes an old life, a gray-haired life, to know that kind of love. But His love for us is absolutely incomparable. Not only is He incomparable, His love for us is like nothing else. So He responds to her commitment of faithfulness to Him with an absolute undeniable love. One wrote, one said this, the response of Christ to the person who loves him simply, sincerely, and purely is like a love they have never known. You know, I, have a, I feel like I complicate things from the pulpit often, but he's just looking for love. Simple, pure, devoted commitment to Him in love. That's what the Lord's looking for. It's not hard. It's not hard. We make it hard. I think what I said this morning might fit here. We do everything but the one thing. 
a simple, pure, devoted heart to Christ in everything. And we sense communion with Him like we never know. Don't get it confused. We're not earning His love. We're knowing His love. It's communion with Him. So simplify your life. Sit on the back porch and love your Lord and learn to love Him and learn to be devoted to Him. Now, notice the response of the bride back to this love. So forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. We respond to that love with worship. Now you can, hopefully, some of the wives, y'all can understand why submit to your husbands. Why? Because it's faithful to the gospel. You're just painting a picture of what we understand in the gospel. That's why the wife submits to her husband. She metaphorically bows down to him because that's what the church does to her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. She bows down. Now, not speaking negatively about the church, but speaking negatively about the wolves within the church there's so many that have been led not to bow down to Christ, to deny His Word. There, there is so much going on in our day that is absolute arrogance and pride toward the groom, a refusal to bow down. And we bow down by heeding the Word of God and by obeying the Word of God, by being faithful in worship and faithful in service. That's not what's going on today. I mean, we can't even have a conversation about marriage anymore between this this groom and the bride, because they've messed that up. You know, there is no worship of the king anymore. These are, these are tough times. These are terrible times. But again, there's nothing wrong with the church because there's always that are in the church that are not of the church. But on the same token, there's always those who are truly in the church and of the church. And there's nothing wrong with her. She's having to be faithful and worship God among a bunch of scoundrels. So we've got to be faithful as the people of God to bow down and worship Him in every respect. Verse 12, this is imagery that we would not get so much. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now, that's pretty interesting. They'll seek the favor of the bride by giving her such an elaborate gift. Now, Tyre was, I wrote this down from my notes, the commercial metropolis of the world. It was the place that was recognized as a place of great wealth. And so to get a gift from Tyre, oh, it's, it's going to be nice. You know, it's like to get a gift, I guess, from Tiffany's. It, it's going to be swank. There's nothing there that's cheap. Right? Did y'all have any rich people come to your wedding? I mean, like, really, we didn't. But you know the expectation. Somebody comes to your wedding, you know, they're like millions and millions and millionaires. And what are you thinking? What'd they give me? That's your first thought. I wonder what they got. Surely it's going to be good. And then you open it up, and it's like some $20 gift from a gift store. It's got like, are you kidding me? Cheapskates. That's not what's going on here. The wealthy have shown up from the most expensive place 
trying to earn the favor of the bride by such an elaborate gift. And again, it's a picture of blessing. It's absolutely awesome. It's like, oh, what we got her, she's going to love. We've spent so much on this. Now, verse 13, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I've just got to apply the double meaning. Don't usually need to do this. The king's daughter is all glorious where? Within. You should immediately thank gospel. Because the gospel is the only place that can affect the within. But that's not the literal translation of the word. It's not within her. It's within her chambers. So in other words, she's gone to get dressed. And now she's sitting there waiting for herself to be clothed in her wedding gown, right? And he remarks at her beauty. Ah, oh, she's gorgeous. She's absolutely glorious. I guess her hair is fixed and the makeup's on by now. I don't know. But the writer takes a look at the bride before the gown comes on. He's like, man, you ought to see this girl. She's something. Okay. Now, here we go with the gown. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. Of course, again, we're going to stay with the marriage of the lamb, right? And so we see this as robes of righteousness. She's adorned absolutely extravagantly with gold and embroidery. I mean, her gown is like no other gown before. And of course, when we experience that time in glory in the kingdom of heaven, we're going to be adorned with righteousness. And, you know, this always brings me to tears when I mention this from the pulpit. The presence of sin will no longer be a part of our lives. We will finally and fully be holy and understand the robes of righteousness. It's going to be like nothing you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams. It's going to be the most awesome thing to walk in the robes of righteousness. So when you picture this, you, you, you look at this bride and you go, look at that gown. There's no telling what that cost. I'll tell you what it cost. It cost the groom his life. That gown cost more than anything in all of creation. You think about the price of that. No higher price was paid than what she's wearing. It's absolutely beautiful. It is the righteousness of God. Now we're bringing her to the king. Notice verse 14 again. She will be led to the king. So here she comes walking down the aisle. The virgins, her companions follow her. Those who have not been married yet, they're just excited to be a part of the wedding. They will be brought to you. Verse 15, they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing and they will enter into the king's palace. Of course, where the king's presence is. Now, verse 15, it's awesome to think this, that it doesn't matter what context, what culture, what tribe, what nation you find yourself in, if you find yourself at a wedding, it's joyous. It's an absolute celebration. I, I love weddings from different cultures who truly go to great lengths to make it a celebration, even a week-long celebration. 
just absolute festivity, dancing, music, uh, food beyond measure. Weddings ought to be an extravagant celebration because they are looking forward to a wedding that's going to be like no other wedding, that's going to be so joyous, we will celebrate it for the rest of eternity. Isn't it amazing that God has done that in every culture? Because He's painting a picture. You think, you think you're joyful now? Oh, just wait. Just wait at the joy you will have when you finally are wed to your King. All right, again, verse 15, the second part. They will enter into the king's palace, into his presence. So again, we've got the groom, we've got the bride standing side by side. He's done it twice, and now he stops. And he begins at verse 16 to 17 to speak about their children. In place of your fathers will be your sons. Our Lord Jesus will bring many sons to glory, the writer of Hebrews says. You shall make them princes in all the earth. Spoken about in Revelations in a different respect. I will cause your name, he speaks to the groom. That's why it's capitalized there. It's masculine. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, for certainly he has done so with his son. Therefore the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. And we would add in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to bring this all the way down, go with me to Ephesians chapter 5. So I want to take all the imagery of Psalm 45 that I've just posted on your brain and I'll read to you the longest section that we have in Scripture on marriage. 5 beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of His body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. Now notice verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
So you can see Paul's whole emphasis was not even marriage. He's just saying, you need to understand your marriage in light of the gospel, of what Christ has done in His church. And if you understand marriage in that way, and you walk in marriage that way, and you treat your spouse in the way that is here, you're glorifying what is going to take place in the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody gets that privilege. It's absolutely the highest calling of marriage to paint the picture of the joy that we will experience in the kingdom of heaven. Man, don't you take your opportunity for granted. But what a wonderful opportunity we have. But again, I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and His bride. Certainly, the writer in Psalms 45 is doing that very thing. All right. No other psalm like that. That one sits unique. And it's fascinating that it's, so much of it's quoted in the New Testament. And there's no other psalm like it. But certainly Paul and certainly the writer of Hebrews knew very well the spiritual significance of Psalm 45. We don't even know who wrote it, actually. Comments, questions?